Welcome to Defense Unicorns, a podcast for mission-focused innovators. We educate, inform, and provide mission heroes with DevSecOps, cybersecurity, and organizational transformation stories from the world's leading problem solvers. I'm your host, Rob Slaughter, and we're excited for you to join us on this journey. Welcome to Defense Unicorns. Today, we have Preston Dunlap, the founder of Arkansas Ventures and the former CTO and chief architect of the U.S. Air Force and Space Force. Preston, welcome. Hey, Rob. It's great to be here with you. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, it's an absolute pleasure and honor having you on the show. You know, obviously, we've been working together for a number of years while, while I was still serving. One of the things that always confused me a little bit is the titles of CTO and Chief Architect. I, I'd love to hear in your own words, you know, what those positions referred to and, and sort of what was some of the roles and responsibilities you had at the time. Yeah, Rob, well, I certainly appreciated all the work that you and the team did to revolutionize software in the department and a pleasure working with, with you as well. So thanks for all that you did and continue to do for the department and for companies serving the department. So big thanks to you and the team. Thanks for asking. It's, it was quite an honor to be asked to come back to the defense department after a hiatus of a few years out at Johns Hopkins Applied Physics Lab. And the secretary and assistant secretary and the chief at the time, there was only one service, sort of brilliantly recognized that the department was basically scattering seed corn across for science and technology activities. And we had folks overseeing that and looking at it. And then we had a whole slew of programs of record and acquisition programs, sort of you know silos of excellence, some folks would sort of affectionately call it, so to speak. And each of them got together and they, I think, astutely realized that, you know, if you had a company, you would have somebody that is looking at the collection of products as a whole and the engineering and the technology associated with those programs and products that are inside that business. And uh, many titles could go along with that, but they recognized uh, sort of one thing is that the need for coherence across all the different programs. And second, to be able to think about the integration of those activities in the acquisition process. So at the end of the day, you don't just have a series of a thousand widgets coming off the proverbial conveyor belt, but you actually have systems that are modular and upgradable. And then, you know, as, as one might crazily sort of want, you actually get them to work together at the end of the day so that you can bring together a system of systems that works as our operators need them, which is actually how we use them in, in, in sort of day-to-day operations or conflict. And so being able to pull together the technology and that startup mindsets and the industry experience into the way the Pentagon works and to try to, to change that it was essential to being able to be part of the acquisition apparatus because that's where... That's where money flows, that's where scale happens, that's where programs become more real and get delivered. And so uh, having a foot in that was essential to being able to have actual influence and opportunity to partner with all the great folks that are requiring, designing, building, and delivering systems for what was just one service. And then about a year into it, it came two services for both the Space Force and the Air Force. And when you talk about systems of systems integration, can you talk to a little bit of some of the challenges and, and maybe a little bit about some of the things that are going well or maybe not not going so well? Yeah, this is not too dissimilar to sort of large corporations, but the government is the largest company, certainly in terms of human capital on the, on the planet, so the largest employer, and on a bad day, so to say the largest bureaucracy. And so there you've got the challenges of, of scale, and uh, that's both a people challenge as well as a, a product and how you build challenge. 
and what the system or the approach to acquisition and developing requirements tends to do in some sense by design is to basically remove any type of dependency on another program or another office and that at an, in its time has good reasons the idea being you don't want to hold up your schedule waiting on someone else's or sort of multiply multiply risks from one product to another but that sort of isolation at the end of the day basically created the incentives to whenever we decide we need to go buy a new plane or a new munition or a new software system that we thought of those as a department by design effectively as an individual island of itself and that would have its own requirements, its own schedule, its own vendor or vendors, its own metrics. And, and, and then so on the whole de delivering and developing of the program itself as a thing, but then the incentives applied to program managers and engineers and the oversight organizations from Congress to the White House to the Secretary of Defense's office, all those pressures are there to basically deliver on time and on schedule. And those are, those are good ambitions in end state. But what happens is that the tendency is to basically sort of remove out any risks associated with allowing, say, that munition to talk to a different platform. And so you end up in states where, say, former and now late Secretary Ash Carter would often tell me and others, hey, we're buying platforms without bullets. You know, we need to have munitions to go with our platforms and sufficient inventory and capability. And so that mindset has largely been missing with, with sort of few exceptions or, or lighthouses on the hill, so to speak. And what that means is that when we build something and design it, we need to think of it as an ecosystem. And that tends to be going against the grain of the natural processes, the training that we put our folks through. But in fact, that's exactly how we operate. Right? We don't just fly planes without munitions. We don't have maintainers that don't have platforms with them. We don't have aircraft carriers without, you know, planes and sensors. It all goes together. And so it makes sense that we should actually have people thinking about how to not only deliver excellent warfighting capabilities, but actually how those systems come together to achieve the intended effect as a, as a family would. And so that mindset, I think, really came back for me initially thinking about building counterterrorism capabilities not too long after 9-11. After but fully when I was working for Secretary Bob Gates and looking at sort of his primary five initiatives that I had the privilege to do, and he invoked in me sort of the strong mindset of being able to think about families of systems and not simply individual programs or products. So I thought it was just really prescient, that approach that he and other secretaries had. And so that's, you know, coming back to the department here the last three years now at a, at a service level, as opposed to the Secretary of Defense level. And provided the opportunity to work with like-minded folks and find brilliant people that were out there ready to actually think differently about acquisition and think differently about technology integration and where we get it from and how we pull together both commercial and traditional sources into not just great individual programs, but actually thinking of a collective whole, a collective Air Force, a collective Space Force, a collective Department of the Air Force, and a collective Joint Force, and so on. Can you talk a little bit about the the progress that's been made? Do you think things are heading in the right direction? Do you think it's, do you think it's moving fast enough? You know, everything that you, you know, talk about, it sounds, it sounds obviously very promising, but one of the first thoughts that come to my mind is, is, you know, the difference between the, the talking points and what's actually getting executed. 
Yeah, Rob, I mean, it's a great observation. So I, I think that, and that's a good test, I think, is how, how much of, you know, how much of, of our speeches or, or, you know, visionary statements are coming to fruition and, and at what scale and speed and pace. And that's a good question to ask. And I don't, I don't think we should ever stop asking that question. You know, one of the things that was sort of an inhibitor to that that speed and agility was sort of longstanding, you know, I don't know if it was fear or long inhibition of being able to integrate and apply capabilities and technology and products that exist for things like commercial applications. This is a common talking point now, but say in 2014 or 2015, this was a new idea. And and so various secretaries like, like Ash Carter pushed this in a big way to try to instill it inside the Department of Defense and the intelligence community as well. But you know, one obvious thing is trying to figure out how to integrate and adapt technologies that exist either in another part of the, of the government or a commercial sector where something is serving an excellent purpose that could be transferred or maybe slightly modified to be able to use in a national security setting and to be able to design acquisition programs requirements to absorb that. In another case that there doesn't make sense to be able to do that. There are, you know, things like, you know, munitions and others that don't have broad commercial applications. And I guess, thank goodness. And so you need to be able to think uh, about how to design and develop those in an agile way, both from a software and a hardware perspective. And so uh, there's a variety of strategies, I think, that, that have been proven both successful and where you should watch out and be in, you sort of watch out to make sure there's no warning signs. But essentially, I, I don't, we're not, we're not near the speed and pace that we should be of developing and integrating modern technologies. And that's a concern. I think it's a, it's a concern because number one, we're losing out on tech and products that are available to the broader globe because we have limitations or concerns or risks associated with integrating those. And the speed is, is way too slow. So that's, that's sort of a problem on the, on the supply ingestion side. It's there. We just can't integrate it. We just can't, it's like, it's, it's right beyond your grasp. You just quite can't touch it and, and pull it in. On the other side, on the, the more competitive landscape, you, you can look out and you see, you know, China especially is sort of the the standard example of a, a country that's that is has a different approach to things. That's not an approach that we would want, you know. But they've also shown the ability to then push and deliver technologies very quickly. So you've got an, an outside that is moving quickly, building technology in a rapid way and expanding in a bunch of different directions, both physically as well as from a tech perspective. And so we've, we've got both this sort of like opportunity lost by not being able to integrate what's right, like literally right here on our shore and, an, an, and a risk sort of growing overseas as competitors or potential competitors are developing technologies that would put sort of us and our allies and partners at risk. And sort of that pincer move from both the inside and the outside creates what I think is sufficient desire, momentum, energy to be able to go like, push the boundaries and deliver and motivate. And I think it does in a big way. It's why you hear people talking that way. That's why a lot of sort of the forces is communicating that way. But what happens, as you know, Rob, is that that sort of vision and desire and motivation and energy sort of gets, gets hit with the wall of the way things have been done or the way procedures uh, incentivize or the way we've been trained or the risks that could be posed, you know, or if things don't go perfectly, what happens to the people or the programs, what happens to money? There's all these incentives that sort of push against what I think is a true and genuine desire to move quickly, adapt, you know, deliver technologies. I, I think I think we're we're in a good place on on sort of the, the idea and the concept and the vision, I think, both 
in Congress and, and in this White House and previous White Houses, as well as the Department of Intelligence community. The, the, the rubber meets the road is like just like in a startup or a business. It's all about execution and finding from A to Z. You've got to be able to then take that vision and then translate it into policies, procedures, execution, delivered programs that not only work well themselves, but integrate together. And that's the secret sauce. And so when you get a team together and programs together and leadership together and executors together and builders together and users together, it's not surprising that great things happen. It's just really hard in a massive institution to do it. And that's no excuse. So long way of saying, Rob, I think we've got to move, move faster, more quickly. We can do it smartly. So I know we can. We shouldn't do it foolishly. But uh, that's just essential. And it's, just, it's opportunity lost if we don't. And so every, every time I see things like that happen, I just get excited that people are sort of taking the mantle from those of us that have gone before and are continuing to not only deliver, but also move to deliver at scale. And, and that's so essential, not simply in software, although we talk a lot about that, but it's also a revolution in hardware as well. So clearly the motivation is there, both, both external factors as well as, you know, internally within the DOD, a lot of passionate, motivated people to, to really create that change. How do you turn motivation into outcomes though? What do you think specifically is sort of the steps for success that you think in general the DoD has been missing? Yeah, great question. So the, you know, getting from that, getting from A to Z or, you know, a vision and desire to reality. There's so many, so many people, programs and businesses, frankly, trip up there. I mean, that's why sort of the, the common adage is you can have a great, great idea as a, you know, as a startup or an early founder, an early company, but execution is that secret sauce. Or if you're building hardware, it's not just that design or prototype, it's the execution at scale and manufacturability of the programs. Like that's, that's where things make difference at scale. And so to, to not be too enamored with one side or the other of that equation, but to be able to get all the way through the process is essential to have something, a strong commercial sort of play or a strong defense and intelligence or broader national security type of play. You know, how do you do it? Well, in, you know, there's sort of easier to touch metrics in the, in the private sector on things like, you know, revenue and valuation of companies with more quantifiable approaches. And you can find some of those, although we, we tend to report out and, and get asked about input metrics. You know, how, have, you, have you done the checklist? Have you, you know, built some kind of 30-year projection and sort of as, as some, in some sense that that's real or, or will actually come to fruition as planned? You know, do you have all the documentation in? And so you can do all this work to be able to require input metrics. And it's not obvious that those input metrics are directly related to output results. And in some cases, those are there for excellent reasons. In other cases, you know, they're there because, you know, a, a program had a serious issue that should not have happened. And so, you know, rules or procedures were in place to do it. But I think that there's a, a better way that if, if we could work as a community from the builders outside the department to the, the buyers inside the department and the overseers and, and Congress on the Hill could actually transition to thinking about measuring performance on outputs, you've got a different set of in incentive structures. It's, it's not just, am I doing sort of the checklist for whatever program or acquisition, right? Or am I building the artifacts, but am I delivering? 
And for things like software, we've, we've seen where that actually can play, where people can tangibly see code being delivered, not just developed, but delivered into production and be used. And software is sort of attuned to that. Well, what hasn't happened as much as a revolution, and we, we, we have tried to push this and continue to do on things like you know open architecture, digital engineering and standards, certainly had a division that worked on that for my team as well, pushing that. But in some sense, you should be able to see either subcomponents or portions of hardware also be able to be thought of as you know modularly built. And if you do that, you sort of have a moral equivalent to that software modularity and deployment that you have. And so thinking of building hardware in an agile fashion, not simply software in an agile fashion. And you can begin to have time and space where you can actually begin to see the output of the development of hardware and not just software. And so for example, what do I mean? Let's put some meat on the bones, like in the space world. So, you know, half of the, the department here, we just, just uh, moved just as I was departing to move from about an $18 billion a year to a $24 billion a year space for budget. And, you know, a good portion of that change is in the movement from sort of large systems to, to smaller, lower orbit systems where we can actually integrate more broadly available, used and accessible supply chain components, put something together and get it on orbit very quickly, like in months, not, you know, years or decade. And now I can have a hardware system in an environment that was sort of off limits, so to speak, to the commercial sector or new entrants, but I can provide output. Is it performing? Is it surviving? Am I getting insights that I thought I could in the hardware regime in a place that has traditionally thought of as a place where you don't go for things like prototyping and, and development? It's much harder to do there than it is on the earth. And so I think we've got real tangible examples in the Defense Department now over the last couple of years we pushed in this regime, as well as, you know, things like automakers and others that are trying to, for, for a variety of different sort of commercial reasons, push to modularity, push to software inside of hardware, you know, software, you know, sort of driven and, and developed cars, for example, you know, flying cars, all those, those sort of the pushes are out there. And so this shift from input to output is just a really, really powerful tool to be able to incentivize delivery. Now, I'll just say that's a sort of a motivational and why I think it works. The, the challenge is that you have to have not only that right motivation, but you've got to pull together a team of people that understand what the technology and the components and the products need to be. So in other words, not just how to construct a contract, but actually how to build a thing, a product that meets users' interests and needs and requirements. Then you have to have operators that are able to then interact with that. And in the government, we tend to train our folks more for the checklists and the, the contract actions, the program management. And we need that. But we've, we've, we need to push harder on, I think, really getting in-depth and understanding the technology and the product space because you, you need that to be really good buyers and really good partners with industry and operators so that you're all in this together to develop. And it, it takes that budgetary requirements, contracting, acquisition, builder partnership, operator partnership to actually make this magic happen where you can actually deliver quickly and use it and sort of build as you go. And, you know, so those are just some of the things that I would say that we, we need to do to be able to make this, uh, make this sort of future, you know, be realized. And you can see pockets where it happens. It's just not the normal way that we sort of train and organize and, and equip our folks to go, to go do that. I, it's not only a DOD and intelligence community thing. I see this same thing here in the outside world in large corporations. 
you see it in sort of books and innovators dilemma and other sort of you know, sort of broadly you know public facing commentary and research but the secret sauce is not dissimilar it's being able to bring those teams together of all the the right you know understanding to be able to produce those products and to be able to do it quickly and be able to resist forces that are out there that are trying to say nope nope we've got to do it the old way Nope, nope. I want to just think about input metrics. And you got to convince them that I can give you output metrics. I can show you results. And then you can judge based on results, what you can see, not just what you should, what you're having to believe in the documents. So that's a future that I think we still have to go towards. It's one that I saw firsthand and helped to, I hope, sort of helped push in the three-ish years that I was back in the department. And I'm so excited to see people sort of carry that torch on. Now, if you could just, you know, make a a change or two, like something concrete that, you know, if you had the influence or, or the authority to make, to, to change the entire department, you know, what, what type of change in policy or law or practice do you think would make the biggest impact? Yeah, Rob, that's a great question again, and I'd certainly be interested in your thoughts as well, since you, you, you've got this great perspective, you know, living it and building it and delivering certainly in the software space. Let me take a stab at it and if, if certainly be appreciate any, any thoughts you want to offer on the subject too. You could take a few different angles. I, the, the one is a cultural one, where, which I don't think you can mandate or you can write an instruction to basically say, you should wake up every morning. And if you're in the, the space of developing, delivering, requiring funding, acquiring product, that you, you, should, you should actually wake up every morning passionate about delivering it and, and fighting as hard as you and the team can to go deliver it. We don't always incentivize that. We have people that want to do that and, and are not supported or enabled. And so one, I think the, the most impactful thing would be sort of moving to a culture where that's something that is not only broadly sort of encouraged, but practically encouraged as well, both in, in time and dedication and fundamentally expectation. Like I, I expect you and I'm excited about you delivering this product to the end user. Here's the end user that, that may not seem like rocket science, but when I, when I first arrived three ish years ago, I did a, a tour around all the units across the globe and across the country that we're doing acquisition, I by no means talked to everybody. However, the sample size that I did talk to, basic, I don't think I came across anyone that had directly had conversations with their end user operational customers. And so the, the moat or the distance between the user and the person trying to acquire and even the person writing the requirements those were large distances in time and space. And you could point to sort of the, the children's telephone game to sort of, without any metrics whatsoever, to basically see how that's not a great sort of approach. And so number one would be the, you know, a culture of building products, not programs. Number two would, would be shortening the distances between the key stakeholders in the, that product that's being built the users, the builders, the acquirers, the requirers, and push them together right at the beginning and keep them together as they do that. Thing three would be where 
you can think of buying a portfolio of systems or a family of systems to be able to achieve that operational end state, we should be thinking about acquiring and developing portfolios or families of systems. We've done this in small portions and pockets, but this is something that isn't simply a, you know, often some people will say that and think of that as a, as sort of a budgetary trick to get sort of a pool of resources that can be moved from one or the other and oversight is difficult. And that, that's not, although I could see how that could be helpful. What I, what I really mean is you've got an integrated team where they're, they're not all behind various walls, not talking to each other, not working to each other so that you end up basically having every single program having to solve every edge case for that problem, whereas you could actually do it better, more effectively if you had a collection of capabilities. And so that portfolio product approach or portfolio acquisition approach isn't simply a budget thing. This is really, this is really a product approach to being able to, to do that. And so, you know, if you think about you in the, you've got to have something where you, you're you know, your, your phone works, but you also have your mobile plan, but you also have your Wi-Fi plan. You also have your apps on the side of there. They're all modular and open, but they all work together. And if you only had an app with no phone, it doesn't work. If you only had Wi-Fi, couldn't go anywhere if you didn't have cellular. So you got to think about the ecosystem. And we just don't really think about and plan and drive ourselves towards the ecosystem of portfolio. So we, we may organize on an org chart and it kind of looks like that, from a, you know maybe a PO management perspective, but we've got to really push ourselves to actually go beyond sort of the administrative collection of programs into the de developing and delivery of programs. And that's not just on the government side too. If, you, if you're in a large profit and loss organization, the tendency is going to be there too. You to have basically a collection of one program after another, after another, or one product if you're a commercial facing organization and seeing and harnessing the power of transforming your P&L or your business into an ecosystem of capabilities that's, that reinforces each other and integrates with other systems. It's just so powerful to be able to unlock the potential. And that, that means you can move away from singular and proprietary approaches into still revenue generating opportunities, but those that have a larger pie to go after because you can interlock and you can work with others. It's the same, same analogy that we have here in the department. At least the last barrow just say that I think you could really knock down and everybody says it, but very few are doing it are things like, you know, accreditation and security and cybersecurity essential elements, absolutely essential elements, but executed in the how, often not done with the right mindset to be able to focus on delivery of systems to the operators that need it, the risk associated with that, whether temporal or otherwise. And so being able to not simply talk about, we've got to do it differently, but actually execute differently is sort of, I think is, is just, it's an obvious thing to say, but there's just a few sort of luminaries that are out there that are actually, I think, willing to take on sort of the, the personal load of being able to carry that message and then explain the risks and opportunities associated with that. But it is often cited as a, a massive barrier to entry for commercial technologies or even national security focused companies that are trying to deliver something in an agile and rapid manner. And this is where they meet the, the large wall that's impossible to scale of our various networks or on-premises solutions or, or security environments. Those are all there for good reasons. It's the how. 
how to scale, how to scale across the wall in this case, or through the wall in an appropriate, you know, agile manner to be able to do that. So those are, you know, a handful of things that I'd suggest. But Rob, I'd certainly be interested if you have a few things that you'd like to suggest too. No, I think I think you you nailed it. A plus, hundred percent. I think everything you outlined, culture, shortening the gap between users and your systems of systems integration. I think the only real question I kind of have for you is, you know, maybe talk to the audience a little bit around the sense of urgency within the department. You know, do you think there's a point of time in the future to where we've waited too long to change and can no longer hit the pace that's required? Yeah. Ur so that's interesting. Urgency is, is so key. I, I think if, you know, if we've hit that point where where it's just too late. We're we're probably not doing a defense unicorns podcast. Like so, something this is not a good not a good world to be in. So I, I think that's a is a bad day. We got lots of problems, and until then we've got we've got to work this and and actually try to make change happen as scale and quickly. So I think that in of itself is sort of sufficient in my mind to think about driving the urgency. So I talked about like the lost opportunities where we, where we can touch something, but can't use it. And then on the, the overseas side, we got av potential adversaries that are building capabilities that can contest, you know, congest or, ma or make difficult our operations. And those two things I think should be sufficient to motivate urgency, but those aren't necessarily the things that we wake up sort of in the inbox, you know, drilling us in the morning. It's, you know, something else or it's administrative matter or it's a, it's, you know, part of the input metrics that becomes sort of top of the inbox to go execute during the day. And so that urgency is key. Now you can do that because you got to, you know, if you're in the commercial world, you got to beat a different, you know, a, a potential, you know, competitor market. Maybe you want to get out there and, and start something from scratch and you got to, you'd be able to produce a product sort of quickly or more agilely than others. Maybe you're going to, not the first to market, but you want to go make it better, more usable, more friendly than whatever out there on, is on the market now. And so you've got sort of a personal passion, a sense of urgency from the the sort of ecosystem forces that are there. Sort of, you know, you got to you got to thrive to be able to survive. And we need that moral equivalent inside the national security community. And apart from sort of a na like a national crisis moment where you can focus and achieve urgency through that focus. It's very hard to do. So, you, so you, you end up getting these sort of pockets of urgency and opportunities to be able to go take effect. So it was slow, but we had sort of the 9-11 movement and then things happened. But it took several years to go actually make, you know, and, you know change, move, maneuver through the system after that. We had combat operations in the Middle East. Lots of opportunity to be able to go, you know, deliver and experiment with new technologies and deliver that, you know, system. We had COVID-19 that hit, sort of upended our ability to work. And so that, you know, could have just been sort of like sit on your hands and don't do anything. Everybody's going to their home and, you know, but we've got people trying to think creatively about how to go execute mission, save people's lives. So out of that, you know, at least certainly in my experience, I had my team work a, a number of solutions to go deliver work for medical professionals out of New York and on the hospital ship to be able to get real-time data ingested and user interfaces for those operators to use and protective gear for them. And then from the work from home space back home, I was looking around and we're unable to operate. So hey, let's go build a secure classified system so that people can work just like like in their office, but at home on classified systems. And oh, by the way, I'd love to make it even better than the office because that's not a great experience for a lot of people from an information technology perspective. And so 
even that specific example, just in about four weeks, we had a new system accredited, accredited that I'm the team had built. We started deploying that. And then the challenge was then scaling that to others. But that crisis of urgency created opportunities to be creative and break down barriers for people to be able to see the problems in front of them and recognize that we need to actually go move through that to be able to not only continue to work, but to be able to enable our people to do what they need to do, whether that's real time operations or it's sort of the business of running, you know, the military and the defense department. And then, you know, it'd be interesting to see sort of like in, in, in recent, you know, two, for example, with, you know, the balloons or the unidentified objects that are up there, you know, what, what sort of creative opportunities and urgency are out there from a real world operational perspective that could drive things like advancing sensors or integrating data networks and observation or being able to, to address and deal with sort of a, a different class of, of challenges. And, and those are questions that people in the department, I hope, are sort of grappling with. But that clear-eyed view of a real problem and a real challenge and then driving to deliver it has sort of come to a focus and like a, like a point of a pen and, and point of an arrow where everybody's aiming at that same direction is essential. Now, that, those are real examples, like real-world challenges and problems. You know, the, the other approach that I came to the department sort of recognizing with was that you don't, you don't always have a sort of an, an unfortunate real world activity to sort of drive that creativity and sort of work through sort of molasses like procedures and processes and sort of try to make things better. And so you can do it program by program or acquisition by acquisition or intelligence unit by intelligence unit. But, you know, one of the things that I just thought of that came back, having seen it from the bird's eye view in the Secretary of Defense's office for a number of years, and now going to a department that is organizing training and equipping. You know, one of the strategies that I sort of employed, and I wrote about some of this in my exit paper, uh, was basically not just bring in Silicon Valley like speed into the department, but then also drive urgency to execution. And you could do that in a variety of ways. So I did it through a series of sort of time-driven devices led by the operational community that required a whole bunch of platforms and systems, some existing and new entrants into the community with massively difficult objectives to achieve on very short timelines, like, you know, weeks to build or maybe a couple of months and deliver that where the whole sort of quote unquote classified world is watching, where you got all the, the four star community watching, all the operators and the users, all the acquisition, the budgetary folks, even Congress watching. And, and, and so there's this immense sort of sense of urgency to deliver something that, you know, is useful because the operators are driving it, people that need this capability living day in and day out. And so using that approach to being able to to not sort of give exact pinpoint answers to problems, but to shake the system into being able to deliver and design and sort of wake up to the fact that we can actually do this here in the broader defense department and the intelligence community. It's not sort of far off thing or a desirement, but we're literally doing it and everybody's aiming towards it. And that was, I think, a, a tectonic shift in the way the department's been thinking and one that I, the ripple effects continue in a positive way. So, you know, you see now the chief digital and AI officer office sort of retaking back up in a different form that, you know, the mantle of doing similar types of exercises to provide the department's data and infrastructure and, you know, forward, you see the task force over in the Middle East doing this on the Navy side to be able to integrate autonomy in a way that sort of the traditional building process wasn't doing. So I, I, these ripple effects are just continuing. And it's just so encouraging to be able to see. And we, we should 
watch them and encourage them and enable that to just continue to happen, not just ones and twosy, but we need to do this in an exponential sense. So I think that urgency is essential and can be driven both by real world operational focus where we, we just take, hey, it's really here and it's pressing and we got to address it. There's the future operational of we got potential adversaries that we need to have a sense that we could actually have to address. And I think the Russia invading Ukraine has sort of woken up, you know, that, hey, we, things actually happen in the world that we need to be able to, to uh, stabilize and be able to support our allies and partners. And then three, you know, opportunities to be able to drive that sense of urgency through, through activities and, and procedures that could push not only operators and acquisition professionals together alongside those, the community of developers. So yeah, as you can tell, I'm pretty passionate about the need for urgency. I, th I think there's a good number of folks that have it in the department. They're often not the ones enabled to actually go execute and deliver. And that's back to that. We got to bridge the gap and shorten the distance between those, those people to get the job done. That was a absolutely fantastic response. One of the things that you brought up in regards to current events was some of these unidentified objects in, in U.S. and Canadian airspace. Can you talk a little bit specifically about, you know, uh, Chinese balloons sort of transitioning across different areas within the continental U.S.? Is this, in your mind, an actual national security issue, or do you think the concerns are exaggerated? Well, it's it's a great question. I, we're you're not positioned to be able to have you know all the answers. You know, we're not not inside the department now, so I'm I'm sure they're working through those issues. So you know, in, in some sense, I don't think we have enough information to say. Uh, on the other hand, you know, if there are you know many balloons that go around the globe, whether is a legitimate reason to do that in meteorological purposes. You know, however, folks could actually certainly do that in a nefarious way, and it it seems like at least in the case of the you know the larger you know Chinese balloon, that's that's certainly what the evidence to date at least indicates. Certainly, its pattern, certainly where it's sort of loitered around, and so you've you've got a you know variety of different angles that could be it gives a speculation. You know, in there, one is sort of actual you know technical collection of information that the balloon's passing over, be that, you know, visual or electronic or some other means, you know, you've got that going on. You've also got sort of testing out potential, you know, TTPs, tactics, techniques and procedures and responses, you know, what, what will we do or not do and how will we respond and where and under what circumstances. And it's possible that's also part of this, you know, some folks speculate that there's legitimate reason to think that you could in some sense sort of think about the activities that have been happening over in, in Eastern Europe over a number of years where you know, Russia has taken certain actions, sometimes very bold, and waited to see what the U.S. or NATO would do in response. And, and each of those, if the response was muted, Russia seemed to then take a more escalatory step and sort of pushing boundaries and then annexing, you know, countries. And so then you could sort of see a sort of a natural progression there to what they ended up deciding to do horrifically here in Ukraine. And so there's something to be said about, you know, testing patterns and thinking about how responses would happen. So I certainly see how that could be a, a vantage point. And, and certainly we need, we are a sovereign nation. We should not allow a foreign adversary to, to do a, that kind of intelligence collection. And we need to think through what the best response is to be able to diplomatically and if necessary, uh, you know, otherwise, like the, it would seem to have shot them down here this week, you know, to be able to respond and, and take care of those capabilities. 
those are probably nuanced conversations that are happening at the highest levels of, of government, you know, down to the Department of the Intelligence community. And until we know exactly, you know, what these other assets were and what they had on them and what their intent was, it's a little, you know, it's, it's we're at risk of sort of overcorrecting or overreacting potential. But what it does drive, I think, is a sense of urgency that we need to have the ability to assess, identify, track and if needed, address assets that are flying both quickly and slowly in and around both, you know, North America, but also our, our locations and allies and partners overseas. That's not unexpected, right? We had to kind of wake up to that when adversaries started using things like you know, drone technology in, in ways that were nefarious. And we had to figure out how to stop those, find and stop the drones. Sa you know, same, same thing that we're kind of seeing here. Is this a, a pattern? of using something that's sort of a longstanding capability and sort of a new way, you know, or not, or is it something else? And so I, what it does drive from a, like a, I think a policy and a tech perspective, a policy perspective, like how are we going to address it and what level from a technology and acquisition perspective, are there, is there software, are there systems in, that we need to modernize, upgrade or adapt to be able to have a better sense of what's happening? in multiple levels of the atmosphere and in space to be able to make better choices and if necessary, be able to respond. You know, this is sort of in the slow flying, you know, 40 to 100,000, you know, level, same concept up in space where we've made a significant prioritization and push in space domain awareness to be able to track not only the vast amount of debris that's up there, but also sort of nefariously created that uh, bad actors have sort of generated over the last few years or poor engineering has, you know, because of bad standards in other countries that, you know, systems are breaking up. So we need to be able to see what's out there in more granular fashion. Now here, this sort of balloon or unidentified object situation, you know, at a minimum, I think should drive us to think about answering those questions more rapidly than we might otherwise have had to do where we typically would think about sort of traditional platforms or missile defense type of approaches, you know, here or otherwise. So I, I do think there is some materiel or acquisition questions to, to go after. And some of that I think could be solved in software with existing hardware. Some of it may require, you know, new or modified hardware to be developed, but it'd be interesting to watch closely how the, the policy tech and, and requirement space sort of plays out here as we see whether more events like this will happen or if we're at the end of it. This podcast, you know, is focused on innovative and passionate people, you know, really, really centered on national security. And a lot of those folks that are listening is a little bit on the junior or mid-level career level. What advice do you have for the contractor, civilian, active duty, enlisted and officer that is trying to disrupt the system in many cases, trying to achieve an outcome in the direction upon which, you know, you, you talked about on this podcast, trying to achieve sort of that, that mission impact but is struggling with the day-to-day -day bureaucracy. What advice do you have for those folks? Yeah, great. So, you know, first of all, I came across so many in the those categories that saw the vision either themselves, almost in all cases, but then also heard from the top leaders talking about it, encouraging it. And so I just was overwhelmed with the potential and excited by the possibility of Let's just say even 
even a quarter of those folks actually, you know, come come through and, and push through the, the potential of those ideas. It's it's a different world. You've identified, I think, a real risk, which is that it's it's no easy path to be a disruptor or an innovator or a, you know an urgent deliverer inside a a fairly arcane you know organization, you know, the largest bureaucracy on the planet. And so I think point one would be keep going. Don't stop. Point two would be, it's going to be painful. Recognize that up front. Don't be discouraged by it. So just know it, it may or may not get easier, but go into it eyes wide open with the, with, with your, the tenacity that it, that it takes to actually achieve something new. And, you know, if you're, if you're starting, let's just jump outside the defense department. If you, if you're starting a new category or a new, a new business and you're an entrepreneur, you're faced every day with somebody telling you somebody else can do it. It's too hard. Hasn't been done before, or it's been done before and there's no way you can do it better or that's yeah, not investable. I mean, there's all kinds of sort of negative wins associated with anything in the space. And and maybe in some cases they're right, but if they were always right, we wouldn't have any of the the massive, you know, massively successful life changing companies that are sort of sitting at the top of the stock market now, or or the private companies that are there. So just just recognize number one that you've got to you've got to keep going. Number two that it's going to be hard, and that may or may not it may or may not get easier over time. Number three that it's not necessarily different inside the the government versus outside any any game changing innovative forward pushing individuals that see the world differently than others and, and are going to push to create it are going to face headwinds and so it's not necessarily the case that on the quote outside it's just better and easier and it's not necessarily the case that if you're on the outside and you think oh if i was just in the government i could make that happen it's not necessarily easier there either but i think the best thing that people can have is not losing that the passion and the drive to go make something happen but going into it clear-eyed that that's never going to be that's almost never going to be an easy you know path to the end there and those two ingredients are just really key the fourth thing I, I would say is, you know, if you are in sort of this apparatus that we're talking about here, as Rob, as you mentioned, on the national security focused area, I would just encourage you to be, be you know, you've got to be professional and respect sort of the organizations you're in. But also, you, you know, you can find, you know, folks that are out there that could be champions and meet them. And they won't always be able to have the bandwidth to be able to 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 help or to guide or, or give advice, or maybe even directly, you know, support or enable you, but don't be shy about doing it again in a professional way, you know, but I, I think one of the things that I, I saw on this, this point was, uh, you know, folks being concerned about, uh, you know, talking to maybe a superior or somebody in a different chain of command, and you know that wouldn't be appropriate to go up through the chain of command. And there are good reasons for why that is the case and other circumstances. But in the kind of the innovation space, and if you do it appropriately, that that's some of the, I think the most helpful things because different people had come with different perspectives. It's not just the most senior person sees sort of all things. It might actually be a more junior person that sees it, but they're positioned appropriately to be able to take effect or to appreciate the problem that you're seeing and perhaps help help sort of overcome whatever the barriers are to being able to achieve that. And so I encountered a number of times where I had folks 
reluctant as they would go. And I, I spent, I don't know, a quarter or a third of my time in operational, you know, units, CONUS and, and overseas, at least as much as I could. And then also in the innovation base out of companies, because I, that, that's where the magic happens. And I, I just had so many experiences where I found that people were reluctant to bring something up or a problem or to just come talk to me because, oh, the, you know, you, you can't go talk to the three-star guy, even though he's a civilian. And then the people that knew me would go back and tell them, no, 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 you, you got to talk to this guy. He actually cares. Like he's going to, he's going to listen. And if he can, he'll do something. And that sort of just the, the sort of aggressiveness, I'd say in a, in a sort of kind way to, to just raise the issue, ask for help, build partnerships, and don't be shy about it. Be professional, but don't be shy. And it may or may not come to fruition, and you may have to figure out a different path to go achieve that. But I just remember you've got advocates that are around the ecosystem and all the services in the Department of Defense. There is certainly, I think, a general collaboration of focus on innovation and delivering and you know real products it's not a you're, you're you're not going against the grain of the strategic conversation it's really you know rob as you mentioned going against the grain of the the way things are done or the execution approaches and so trying to navigate through creative you know how to thread the needle in a way that follows policies and procedures and approaches, but actually achieves the end state everybody is actually pushing for as well. So, you know, for, for what it's worth, I you go eyes wide open, but don't stop. And when you hit, when you hit sort of a barrier to progress there, you know, shift left a couple steps to shift right a few steps and, and then keep going and find partners to go achieve that. And that's what we need to do, whether you're a four star or a one star or a, a enlisted or a junior officer or part of the, the contract innovation team, it can be a tough slog. Anything is trying to make a difference in the world, but the, you, you got to see the vision and, and, and then encourage others to move towards it. And I hope to see more advocates out there at the senior and mid-levels to go enable and empower folks to do that. I'm seeing a, a good trend, but we, I want to see the, I want to see the curve grow exponential, not just linear. And I, and Rob, I think you do too. Yeah. We'd love to actually touch on that a little bit. You know, the, the flip side of it, the, the senior leader the, you know, the 05, the 06, the, the one star, the, you know, SES, GS-15, the material leader, the commander, what advice do you have for those people who are from an authority perspective, you know, already in that leadership role? Yeah. So I think if you're, if you've got the authority, well, first of all, I guess you, it's rare that you've got all the authority you need. <laughs> so you've got some sense of authority and, and kind of back to your earlier question of like, what, you know, what are the policy changes? I think, well, you know, one of those is that for, for good reasons, we divide up authority in some certain cases, but then there are other cases where, where it doesn't make a lot of sense to sort of subdivide up authority so that you gotta, you know, what, you know, I would often use the phrase, you, you gotta have, you know, you 10 people and 10 offices on the Island every day. And any day somebody could fall off the island, you got to get them back on or they change. And so that, that, that's, that means like you're spending all your time managing the island. And so as a, as a senior leader there, to the extent you can 
you can undo that island thinking and require people once a decision is made to hold to that decision until it's obvious that it was the wrong decision or needs to go in a different direction. But, you know, stop relitigating the same questions every day and free up that time, focus and energy to delivery and not not further deliberation is often in your power to do for the circle of authority that you've been granted. And you can usually use that influence to influence other circles of influence, both above and adjacent and certainly below. And so, you know, be be bold about how to do it. If if you find yourself or others thinking that's not the way it's we we usually do it, or it, you know, I'm concerned that somebody will raise a flag if we do it this way, or concern I'll just delay us. You might be right, but you gotta ask your question, is it is it is it worth going lower, worth doing less for greater assurance of procedural success? You know, or do we take the, the, the procedural risk, so to speak, or the institutional risk to achieve something that not only is great, but it's essential for us to be able to deter and defeat if necessary? And with that sense of urgency, I think it drives, I think it was certainly me, it drives a a different calculus for those decisions. You make decisions every day, and maybe even every hour on certain things. And that, that mentality shift, the, that sort of wartime mentality, even if we're not in war, or that entrepreneur who's going from, you know, cup of ramen noodles, the cup of ramen noodles mentality, like that's what you've got to have to go do it, whether you're at a low, mid or high level. And if you are in position to go simplify, to enable, to encourage different thinking, you should do it if you can. And you're going to have to communicate that. So don't just you know break things, but you, you've got overseers in the department, you've got congressional partners, you've got folks in the White House, you got to bring everybody along with you. So you, you can't just sort of go rogue, but you can go bold. And that's, that's what I just encourage you to do and listen to those that are below you or adjacent and hear the problems or the opportunities and apply a megaphone to those opportunities where you can, both for the people's sake, because it, it shows that you're genuinely, authentically listening, but also for the country's sake, because that's what we need to be able to, in the, not, not just from a technological dominance a perspective and a technological edge, but should we have to execute We've got to be able to do so and save people's lives at the least risk possible. And that's sort of at the end of the day, why you have a defense department and intelligence community. And so it's, we have the privilege and the opportunity in this sort of acquisition development requirements and tech space to make a massive difference, you know, if we rise up to the occasion. Now, there's a lot of really exciting things happening across the tech community that that's going to have or already has a lot of overlap with the Department of Defense. Can you talk to you a little bit about some of the things that that you're excited about and maybe, you know, look forward to in terms of how the Department of Defense intersects with technology in the near future? Yeah, so there's, you know, we, we've seen, again, back, you know, starting with prescient leadership of Secretary Carter and others, uh, Bob Work, and sort of the list goes on of folks that have made it a point to be able to shake things up and to be able to think about how to 
become sort of turn sort of a, a traditional, you know, organization or institution into something that feels a little bit more and looks a little bit more like a technology company. And so you think of specific examples like Defense Innovation Unit or you know, other initiatives or the the works constructs that are out there like AFWorks and SpaceWorks to be able to provide pathways in different venues to go do that. And so you, you see things sort of cropping up here. And so I think from a procedural and a pathway and a how perspective, lots of progress has been made. And some might argue too many pathways or it's too confusion, confusing. And I certainly sympathize with that. Um, I think a, a, another concern would be that those pathways have to have to span to scale. So another point that I brought up in my exit paper where we've done a lot of bubbling up of innovative ideas and companies and brought them through and shifted from a grant type perspective to a more of a venture capital and you know, funding approach to increasing rewards for increasing progress. But that falls far short of being able to scale in growth equity or growth companies. And so much work still needs to be done on the resourcing and, and approach to that in the department and, and really in the, in the government as a whole. That's sort of on the how side of the, the equation. So good progress, but we've got to ramp that up into the exponential amount. And then with, a, I think, a keen focus on transition and scale, we've got to dial that up significantly. On the, the intersection from a tech or product perspective, so more the what as opposed to the how, there are so many, you know, we're in this you know, I guess I could say that maybe it's sort of you know being too bold, but like we're just in this wonderful period of a resurgence of of creativity, innovation, and product across a number of areas that that are moving you know out there in transportation with, with automotive and others, with how we do logistics in the commercial world, with with space, which you know I, I had the privilege of of working for. A couple of, you know, Vice President Biden at the time and then, and then Pence when he was vice president working through space and thinking about commercial space and the opportunities that and challenges that that would provide when commercial became, became sort of the massive player in space and beyond. And at the time when that wasn't part of the thinking in the government space and so transitioning from one way of thinking to another, which seemed sort of visionary at the time, but is now sort of like, yeah, okay, we, we know that. <laughs> it's just commonplace sort of understanding at this point. And that's just been in like the last six years. And so you've got this tectonic shift in technology areas like autonomy and, and it's sort of buzzword now, but AI with sort of public facing things like, you know, chat GPT or BARD. These are things that aren't actually new. They might be new from a sort of like a public tech appreciation sense, but they've been you know bubbling under that radar for quite a while. And then space is just one that's just been very obvious in the last few years from a national security perspective, more broadly from publicly sort of consumable because of the role that space has played for communication and observation in Russia's invasion of Ukraine, where we can see things and understand things more publicly because of that commercial section sector than we did before. And so, you know, these are these are things that I think we could we could go on for more time than we have, but these are tremendous commercial opportunities that have even more impactful opportunities inside the national security community where lives are at stake and lives matter. And the, from a business sense, the, the efficiency and effectiveness that you could take by bringing in and absorbing and perhaps slightly modifying when necessary, but being able to integrate 
capabilities that are being tested, driven, sort of rung through the gauntlet, so to speak, day in and day out by millions or more, you know, people and systems, we should leverage that. And we shouldn't be so arrogant to think that we, in all cases, have to start from scratch. And so I think that finding the balance between in integration and adaption and, and adapting those systems you know, versus building your own is going to continue to be a key question. And that balance will probably shift over time. And an increasing number of capabilities will be more in the integrate and adopt. And in some sense, less sort of, you know, build to fit specific. I don't think it's going to be a massive shift in a difference, but it should definitely be more than the sort of the minuscule approach that we have now. And so we can thank DIU and others that have, you know, done done work in the the AFWorks and SpaceWorks and their equivalent organizations that have sort of been doing heroic work, beginning that process down at the at the left end of the spectrum. And now we need to move that all the way through the process. So great opportunities on both the how and the what, I think. So last question for you that we ask all of our guests, you know, why should people subscribe and continue to listen to this podcast? Well, mostly because Rob Slaughter is, is orchestrating <laughs> these conversations and, and who would not want to hear Rob Th Slaughter's both thoughts and brilliant questions that he asks. So I think num number one, that's clearly the answer. Uh, number two, I, just from sort of s seeing the guests that have been on here, you've got lots of various perspectives of folks that come from very specific software-oriented or cyber perspectives. Then you've got folks that are, are more in the camp of, you know, government or national security decision makers or policy and folks that are in between. And that I think that that ecosystem of individuals are sort of equally important to be able to listen to. And you got sort of strange folks like myself that sort of sit both in the technology space as as, as well as the, 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 the government executive space and trying to walk you know, one foot in both camps. And so I just, I, I really like the collection of individuals that, you, that you're pulling together to, to have these conversations. And, and then just on a personal note, I, I think the, the drive that, that you're encouraging by encouraging urgency, boldness, and speaking to, to both folks that that have authority, but a lot of folks that have sort of authority in smaller circles or or more junior or in the in sort of the mid stage of career is just essential because th those are the future leaders or their current leaders, and they're going to have the most impact. So if you're touching an audience that cuts across each of those the strata there, like that's a powerful conversation. So it's 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 really an honor to to be a small dot in the line of folks that have the privilege of being on the other side of the microphone from you, Rob. So thank you for the privilege and honor of being able to do that. Absolutely. It's always, always great to talk to you, Preston. You know, I've always admired your work inside the government and outside. And, you know, I think I speak for everybody involved that, you know, I very much look forward to all the great work that you continue to do. You know, I, I kind of have my fingers crossed, you know, that you find yourself back in government someday, you know, either in the near term or long term, because I think there are very, 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 very few people I had the pleasure and honor to serve with that, that made a, you know, bigger and greater impact than you. And so I just wanted to say thank you very much for taking time to be on this podcast. And, and I look forward to actively following your, your career in the future. Rob, same goes to you. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a great conversation.